Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. And with that, I want to introduce Pastor Chris with today's message. <clears throat> oh, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> it's always the most awkward part. Like, oh, man. Casey always. Anyway. Here we are. Our last week of our Clarity Sermon Series, which is, I believe, our third series in the Book of Mark, or mini-series, if you will. Um. Heading into this, instead of just jumping around the scripture, I just want to kind of frame this time for us a little bit. I don't know about you guys, um, but there's a couple questions that I often get asked and asked, and more so this year, people ask me at least one of these questions. But nevertheless, whenever I'm asked these, I find it quite challenging to answer in a concise way without drawing in all kinds of context and um, and more of the story and how to answer these questions without providing just an exhaustive context or stories and pre-existing relational equity being in the relationship with the people that I talk to. Uh, they're seemingly simple questions, but there's so much more to them. And those questions that I get often asked that I feel like I have a hard time actually communicating my heart to people is this, how are you doing? How are you doing? And what do you do? Those two questions, like, how are you doing? It's like, well, 2020, um, like, that carries a lot of meaning this year, right? But how are you doing? And what do you do? These are loaded questions that sometimes people just walk by you and be like, hey, how's it going? You're like, do you really want to know? You just kept walking, right? Or, hey, what do you do? As like, what they're really saying is like, what's your job? But what we do is so much more than our jobs, right? And so I get asked these questions, and I find that they are so loaded. And the answers to them actually have significant relational implications. Significant implications. Now, on a much larger scale than my experience, but in a similar manner, we see Jesus ask his disciples a loaded question this week in our scripture. A loaded question, and it has significant, immediate, and eternal implications. So that being said, the title of this week's message comes from that question that Jesus asked his disciples. And it simply is, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? How are you doing? What do you do? Who do you say I am? Jesus asked his disciples this. And we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Four verses to change your life this morning, to change your perspective, to change not only your heart towards God, but to further understand his heart towards you. So let's read this together. Mark 8, chapter, 20, or chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? See, first he asked, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah or the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Peter's revelation that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. 
Father, would you help us to understand what that means for us, what that means for this world, and the way in which you've called us to live amidst it. So we thank you for this time this morning. Holy Spirit, speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. Four verses, a couple questions, and then a warning at the end. Like that, that's what we got here. So what we're going to do is I'm going to unpack a few things in this that, that help frame what's going on. This is the part like every week where I'm like, okay, let's, let's unpack. Let's look at what some of the scholars, the theologians, and those type of people say about this to bring in context, because right, loaded questions, we need some context, we need to know what's going on. Let's bring in context so we can get down to the heart of God and his heart for us in this. Now hopefully by now as we go through the book of Mark, you're seeing that these places that things are happening aren't just like, oh, they happen to be in this town or they happen to be here. There is importance with where they are and with the, the writer of the gospel conveying the geographic location. This particular one takes place in the unlikely location of Caesarea Philippi, which lays on the border between the Holy Land and Gentile territory. Now, this place was famed for its cultic associations with the god Pan, the nature god Pan. This was a paganistic worship center of the nature god in this polytheistic Gentile territory. On top of that, Herod the Great built a marble temple here to revere the Roman emperor, and his son Herod Philip enlarged the city and then named it after Caesar. Hence where the name Caesarea Philippi comes from, or Caesarea Philippi. So Peter's recognition that Jesus is the Christ occurs in this pagan outpost of sorts. It wasn't like in the Holy Land where everyone is well-versed in the religious traditions and, well, this is what it'll look like when the Messiah comes back. It was this pagan outpost, as far as you could get from Jerusalem and still be in Israel. And after this week, as we move forward, we see that Jesus actually goes from here and starts his journey to Jerusalem, to the holy city. Now, like we often see Jesus do, he teaches his disciples by asking some probing questions. By asking some probing questions. The first one is in 827. He says, who do people say I am? Hey, who? so we've been doing this for a bit. Who is everybody out there? Who is the general public say that I am? And his disciples report that the general public, apart from like some of Herod's people and the Pharisees, is, is pretty good ratings. If we were to look at it in the landscape of what we're dealing right, with right now, he's got good ratings in the polls. The common general perception of him is that people have a good opinion of this Jesus guy. And their views of him actually offset the bitter views of his opponents. Like I said, the Pharisees, or the Pharisees and the Herodians who actually regard him as a pawn of Beelzebub, a demonic person is who they think he is. So many of the people that are against him think he's out of his mind. But what we see here is that the people in general, the general public, actually have like a good thought of who he is. <clears throat> Most of them, though, they kind of put Jesus, they, they, they pigeonhole him, they put him in this box, Right? They put him in this box. It's, oh, he's, he's like John the baptizer, come back. Or, or he's Elijah who has come back. And these opinions remind us of a few chapters earlier when even Herod's top level like people speculated that Jesus was, well, he must be either John the baptizer, remember who he said, who I had killed, 
or Elijah or one of the prophets. But whether the people believed that God sent him to announce good news or bad news, they at least believed that God sent him. Right? That's the common thing here. Like they recognize, hey, God sent this guy, whether he's a prophet, Elijah, John the Baptizer, whatever it is, like it's hard to dismiss that he's been sent by God. So there's there's a little bit of, of understanding, at least, on, on that part. Now, these people, the general public, they've they've hit on the truth to the response to the question, who do they believe I am? They've kind of hit on the truth, but Jesus is not just another in a long line of messengers that God has sent. Where it hits on the truth, it still falls so short. So then Jesus probes further. He says, okay, they think I'm at least sent by God. Great. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And so far the disciples have called him things like teacher. But they ask themselves the same question in the boat, right? Who is this? Who is this that calms the wind and the waves? Who is this guy that keeps doing all of these things? And then Peter, in true Peter fashion, moves to the head of the class. He's like, I got an answer, teacher, right? And he just blurts out, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ. The Greek word Christ is the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. So depending on your translation, you're going to get them both. Which one's right? Yes. Messiah, Christ, they both work. And Peter's confession here occurs in the very center of the Gospel of Mark. And this passage serves as kind of a hinge between the first half of the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus and all his power and doing miracles and healing and all this stuff. And then the second half where we see his weakness, the fact that he is a humble servant, a suffering servant, is about to come to the front of this story and become predominant. And this recognition of who he is is like the hinge between those two ways in which we see Jesus in this gospel. Now, this confession of Peter's represents a significant leap of faith. Given the current associations or expectations on what a Messiah would be, it was no, by no means obvious that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't obvious because of their pre-existing expectations and what they believed this Messiah coming back would look like. So there's a leap of faith here for Peter to say, yeah, you're the Messiah. There would have been like some, a little bit of almost like childish like naivety or, or zealousness in this. Like, yeah, sure, you're the Messiah. I believe it. But like all the things that they had in their Septuagint and all these different things that would tell them what the Messiah coming back would look like, like it didn't look like that to them. Some people were healed, many were fed, but Israel was not yet freed from pagan and Roman domination. So to, to say that does require a leap of faith. You see, in the first century, most Jews believed that the Messiah would be this royal figure, right? An offspring of David, the God who would empower to deliver Israel from her foes. It would come in with might from a royal position and militarily deliver Israel. The king-like figure would be as triumphant as David and as wise as Solomon was their belief. In fact, this hope is expressed in a book called the Psalms of Solomon, which is a collection of 18 psalms that is not in our contemporary canon of Scripture, but it was a part of the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and it's still to this day a part of many Orthodox religious biblical texts. So regardless of whether it's in our Bible, we may not say it's the inspired word of God, but it does represent the people of this time and what they thought would be coming in the Messiah. 
And it says this. This is right out of that from the Septuagint. It said, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts." This is what they were expecting in the coming of the Messiah, somebody to come in with military and governmental might and deliver them and bring punishment and justice. Ezra chapter 4 pictures the Messiah as a lion from the posterity of David who will triumph over the eagle. There's all this depiction and metaphor of just these triumphant battle type of illustrations And so for Peter to say that, we can see how that's a little bit of a jump of faith, right? Like, that's not what they were expecting. And quite honestly, when you're living in oppression and in chains to this occupying government, let's be honest, you're kind of hoping that someone would come in that way, right? When you've had wrong done to you for so long, you're okay with that picture of a Messiah coming in and dealing with the enemy, Now, Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of God, and Peter is now convinced that he's learned the name of the king of this kingdom. And he and the rest of the disciples, however, don't have a clue how he will be enthroned or how he will prevail over the enemies. There's still a lot that is unknown. But Jesus endeavors to open their eyes so that they can see that God will accomplish these purposes in an unexpected way. You see, Jesus is the expected Messiah, but in the most unexpected manner. And that's what we're going to see unfold as we move forward in the scriptures. Yes, he's the expected Messiah. They've been learning about him their entire lives. They've been hoping for him. But he comes in such an unexpected fashion. Now, as the readers of this gospel, we know who Jesus is from verse 1 of the gospel of Mark, right? Verse 1 says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Like, we read that before we get into this entire narrative. But this is a major breakthrough for these guys. Peter and the disciples have finally caught on. And the reader, us, might expect that they've finally begun to shake off their persistent ignorance or persistent stupor. Like, finally, they've arrived. They know who he is because we see it time and time again, right? Like, man, these guys, what's their problem? They just don't get it. Because we think since we have the whole thing in front of us and we've read it and we know how the story ends, that they somehow know all that as they're living in the midst of it. The secret will soon be out. But Jesus doesn't confirm Peter's confession or praise him for his insight here. You notice that? He's like, finally, Peter, great job. I'm proud of you. Great answer. Good job. Gold star, Peter. Like, he doesn't give that kind of interaction. And you think of this in a classroom setting. Peter's like, pick me, teacher. Pick me. I got the right answer. And he says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. (laughs) What What did you come here for then, man? It's, It's just perplexing. It's perplexing. But Jesus doesn't confirm it. In fact, he rebukes him and tells him to tell nobody. 
Now, we read in the NIV, and it says he warned him. But the original word is actually the verb epitomeo, which is translated rebuke. He rebukes him, gives him a strong rebuke rather than a warning or a charge. Mark uses the same verb to describe Jesus' rebuking the demons to be silent. And it appears in our text next week where Jesus and Peter have a little interaction. I'm going to spoil it for you. But this word rebuke is a strong verb that he uses even to tell and command the demons to be quiet. This isn't like a, all right, but hey, let's keep it on the download for a little while longer. He is very persistent, very direct in telling him, which leads us to wonder like, okay, why? Why, do, why does he put it that way? So either Jesus wants Peter to keep a lid on things a while longer so he can stay incognito and still travel around with not too much friction, or he rebukes Peter to remain silent because Peter's understanding of what Christ means is wrong and needs correction. Jesus doesn't want Peter's faulty opinions spreading among the crowds, whose ability to grasp Jesus' identity is even more limited than the disciples. So he's saying like, hey, don't go telling anyone yet. And he warns him sharply. He rebukes him not to go spreading this because he knows that Peter's idea of what the Messiah and the Christ is, is still kind of whack. He hasn't connected to the heart of God and his Messiahship or what it means for Christ to be with him. And so he's saying, hey, not yet. You don't get it yet. Don't go telling everybody. I know you're excited. I know you're excited. You think you got this, you aced the test, but not yet. And as we move forward in the scripture, the latter of those two options actually proves to be true. So today I want to take a look at, with some of this context, the various answers uh, to Jesus' question from the perspectives of the general public, the disciples, and us. How does the general public view who Jesus is in these scriptures? How do the disciples, and then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? So who do you say I am? How did the general public react here? Something that's important that we see is while they may have honored him, they misrepresented him. While they may have honored him, like, oh, yeah, he's an Elijah, John the Baptist, which would have been great for anyone else to be like, oh, you're like John the Baptist, but not for Jesus. He was so much more than that. They applaud him while denying who he really is. The general public, they get it. Like, he's sent by God. But the extent of that and the implications of that, they don't understand. You see, today we deal with this too. There's all kinds of popular, popular and trending views of, of who Jesus is. And we need to remember that we must always surrender to the clear and consistent witness of Scripture when it comes to who Jesus is. There's trends, there's, you know, new ways of thinking about things, but at the end of the day, we must surrender to the witness of Scripture as to who Jesus is. Scholar and professor of theology James Edwards says this, the categories of John the Baptist and Elijah or one of the prophets are not closer to the real Jesus than the various Jesus figures of historical criticism or enlightenment or rationalism or feminism or Aryan and racist theories or the various sociological models in our day. If it's off, it's off. 
Jesus either is fully who he says he is fully God, fully the Messiah that has come to redeem the world. It's, it's not like horseshoes where you get a point for being close. It's not like that. We have to resist the trends. We have to stand on the word against the faulty ideas and cultural ideals that may try to form our faith and manipulate our faith in the world we live in. Jesus here is being identified simply as what he does rather than who he really is. They see that he performs some miracles. He delivers people from demons. He, he heals people. He's a good teacher. And he's identified in that manner by he must be sent from God because he does these things. But that doesn't tell of who he really is. For me, it would be like if the general public was asked, like, who's Chris Zahner? And they say, oh, he's that pastor of that small church and he used to play football. Like, that's the extent of it. Are those things wrong? No. Played football, eh, loosely. Are those things wrong? No, but do they fully encompass who I am? Do they get anything about the heart that is inside of me and how that is applied to the life that I live and the manner in which I live it? It's very surface level, and it's based solely on what I do or what I have done. And that's how the general public was viewing Jesus here. Then let, let's dig in and look at how the disciples viewed him or, or answered this question. You see, as we, as we talked about, the disciples, they kind of get it. They have the title right, right? They put him in the right box, but they don't know quite what that looks like. They believe that he's the awaited Messiah, but they still have it a little bit twisted as to what this whole thing means and the implications on their life. And we'll learn more in the depth about that next week. But we know that these disciples have seen things they can't unsee while following Jesus. They've learned things they can't unlearn while following him. But in a lifetime of religious and cultural expectations of the Messiah, they've, become, they've got foggy vision about how this is actually going to play out. And they become foggy about the heart of God in the midst of the matter. They see the kindness and the compassion of Jesus in each of his interactions with the people, but they're still awaiting the time when they pick up a sword with him and deal vengeance and justice to the occupying forces. There's a disconnect there. They're walking with him. They're seeing the compassion that would reach out and touch a leper, but simultaneously they're just itching to get in that battle and bring deliverance to their people by the way of the sword because that's what they think this is all somehow leading to. They just don't quite get it yet. Like last week how we talked about the gradual gaining of sight with the healing of the blind person, right? They still have something. They're still not seeing it all yet. It's gradual. So to keep our previous correlation, this would be like someone answering the question about who I am by saying, well, yeah, you're a pastor, you love people, and you're a dad and a husband as well. Oh, in fact, you got four daughters. Yep, girls, like, good luck, right? Like, that, that would be like that kind of surface level interaction. They make assumptions about things. It's very like, well, here's some facts about you. Here's what we know, and yes, you're a pastor, you're a dad, you're a father, right? You have these daughters, but they don't connect to the heart of it and how that plays out in my everyday life. So is it better? You could say so. But again, if you don't fully get it, do you get it at all, right? If you don't, if you don't fully get it, do you really get it? If you just think I'm a pastor and a dad and a husband and you know that I have four daughters, do you really know me and what's inside here and what makes me tick and what is my motivation in every relational endeavor of each and every day? Like, I would beg that you don't. 
And so we can know these things about who Jesus is like the disciples did, but is there really a connection to the heart of God there? I don't believe so. And then there's us. Now, I didn't read our names in that scripture, but nevertheless, this begs the question, how do we answer that question? And how would Jesus call us to answer that question and live out of that? So which one of those are we most like? Are we most like the general public or are we most like the disciples? The answer is yes. Isn't that always the answer at church, at least with me? Which one? Mm Mm-hmm. We do both. We can act like the general public of Jesus' time and we can relate to how the disciples answered this question. How do we act like the public? We like the feelings of good teachings and the, and the power that is available in Jesus, but maybe we resist his lordship in our lives. We like the nice sayings and the comforting verses that we read in the Bible or on social media memes, but we're away, we run away or veer away from the ones who actually challenge us in our pre-existing biases and preferences, right? Ah, I love that verse. That one, ah. And we just go to gravitate to what we like and what makes us feel comfortable and we run away from the things that actually desire to make us better. We look to the value of believing in Jesus, but we don't count the cost of actually following him. Man, you hear what I'm saying there? That's how the general public looks at it. Like, man, there is value in having this Jesus guy around just in case. But following him, we don't count the cost. And we, if we did, we might not actually want to pursue that. Or we may honor part of who, we, who he is, but we misrepresent the fullness of who he is and what he's done and what he expects of us. We, we kind of get it, but we misrepresent it in the way we live our lives, the words of our testimony, the words we actually preach through our words and our lifestyle. Those are some ways that we act like the general public. How do we act like the disciples? We acknowledge who Jesus is, but we resist making that true in our lives. We don't fully understand the implications of that on the way in which we live, right? We see the Bible as a book of guidelines instead of a handbook that unfolds the heart and the family and the mission of our creator. Like, gosh, this is good stuff to read and it fills me up and makes me feel warm and fuzzy and it's good to know, but when it comes to applying it and giving that governance in my life, I don't know. We see it as a book, and instead of something that Jesus, that God wants to use to intimately draw us closer to him, that he wants to share his life, his mission with us through that, we don't see it that way. We look at things like the story of Abraham, right? We look at that, and we think it's just boring old literature, and it's not exciting enough, and oh, the Old Testament, Instead of reading as as an account inspired by our Heavenly Father where he invites us into the story to meet his friend Abraham, to see the things they went through together, but that God is a God of his word and he carries out his covenants, his promises to his friends, to his people, and he still pursues reconciliation and redemption today. Have you ever read your Bible thinking like, why does God tell me this story? Maybe he just wants you to meet his friend. He wants to give you a picture of what it looks like to be in relationship with him. He wants you to see how faithful he is even amongst broken humanity. Man. See, we, they kind of get it. 
miss the fullness and the implications of everyday life and of the privilege that we have in following Jesus. They, they, they miss that still. Or we do, sorry. The problem in this is that we have more information than any of these disciples had at their disposal. We know more. We have the entirety of scriptures. We have all of these like historical and cultural books we can read and all this information. We have entire schools that are devoted to teaching us about these things. But we still struggle. We know about the cross, the resurrection, the ascent to heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people, and the establishment of the church. We know all this. We have so much information. There's so much that we know up here, but the struggle is still real. The struggle remains in our hearts, which begs the question or questions. Who do our words say that Jesus is? Who do our actions say that Jesus is? Who do the direction of our hearts say that Jesus is? And then what does Jesus desire our answer to be, you guys? What does he want our answer to those to be? Again, to continue our correlation, the level of heart connection that Jesus wants us to have with him and who he is and using me as that example. So, Somebody asks, who are you, Chris Sonner? You're a dude that had nothing but his own pride and a little bit of talent and some things that were going to be taken taken from you through sports. That was taken to where you had nothing. And then Jesus entered your life. And one night when you were in despair on your knees in your room and you knew nothing else to do but to punch your dresser, a Bible falls off of it, open to Romans 5.8. It says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And all of those lies that the enemy was telling you that said, you need to get your life straight so you can come back to Jesus, were answered in that one silly punch of a dresser. That no, actually, while you're a sinner, right now, Christ died for you. And it was that night that you decided to vote, you decided to vote your life to him. Within a year, you moved to Corvallis, right, to get into ministry, to give your life to him, not out of any convenience, but out of obedience. Seven years later, you chose to uproot your family, to pursue a calling on your life, to start a church in Eugene, the one place that you always told God you would never go. And instead of rejecting it, you chose to be a part of God's redemption for it, and you made the greatest friends and spiritual family you could have ever wished for. You got to see a part of God redeeming your heart for a people and working that out in the context of a local church. Along the way, you married the most amazing woman ever. You have four daughters. You always thought you'd have sons, but you're so grateful that you have four daughters instead because girls are way better. Amen. And you will do anything to see people be in right relationship with God and each other pursuing them even to the point of annoying them until they tell you no, you will continue to call them. That's who Chris is. I could go on, but I don't like talking about myself that much. If somebody were to ask the heart, the journey, the intimate questions, get some context and a little more depth about who I am and what motivates my heart, that's a little bit of what they're going to get. What do you think that is about Jesus that he wants you to know? That he would like you to speak to on his behalf? 
What if we knew Jesus in that way? What if we prayed and worshiped and read the word in a way that drew us that close to his heart, to knowing him and his heart and his motivations? What if we received as he spoke to us that the life that I've called you to live is hard, but I have mercy on you. My people mess up, but I give grace for that. My people are stubborn, but I'm patient. Praise God. You were lost, but I made a way. There was a cost, but I paid the price. The Father's response to us can be seen beautifully in Luke 15, verse 20. This is in the story of the prodigal son. And the wayward son is coming back. And he's made a choice to come humble himself and just ask to be a servant of his father. So, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was a, while still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. How many of you know that you don't see someone coming from a long way off unless you're looking for him? Right? You don't see him coming unless you're looking for him. Hey, my son is going to come back. By God, he is going to come back. Where is he? Is today the day? Is today the day? You know, they didn't have binoculars, so maybe he's just shading the light. Is today the day? Where, where is he going to come from? I can't wait to see that boy again. Where is he at? And he's looking for him, anticipating him, calling, back, calling him back. And then he sees him. And any person of stature in Jewish culture does not run. They don't pull up their, you know, their drape, what, what do they call them? Like, I don't call it a dress because he's just, what would it be called, Corey? Come on, Corey. Anyway, his gown. You don't pull up your gown and start running out in the field, right? Like, that's just not dignified. You don't do that. You sit back and you wait for somebody to come to you, especially when they've wronged you. You can come approach me. But the father's looking, and he sees him coming. And I can just imagine him being like, oh, my goodness, my son, he's come back. He's come back. And he pulls up his gown, and he takes off after him. He's running out there, right? And he kisses him, and he hugs him. I knew you'd come back. I knew you'd come back. Like, that is the heart of our heavenly father. But how many times does the world tell you, ah, you've screwed up. Be careful as you approach him. He's probably mad. That's garbage. He wants you back. He's waiting for you to come back. He's looking for you to come back. And upon him seeing you, he will pull up his gown in the most culturally undignified way. And he will sprint out to hug you and kiss you because he loves you. And he's been waiting for you to come back. He doesn't sit postured up waiting for you to approach him and say the right things. and be like, I'll allow it. That's not how he is. He is so excited for you to come to him or to come back to him. He came after us in sending Jesus to pay the price for our sin, giving all who would repent and believe in him eternal life with him. Worship team, you can come back up. He came after us and continues to come after us with the outpouring of his Holy Spirit in and through our lives. He comes after us by giving us his inspired word through prayer and through community. He continues to come after us. His creation and his design collaborate to come after you, to come to you, to embrace you, to give you hope, joy, peace, and faith in the God who saves. 
So as we close today, I simply say this. Take heart. You are loved deeply by your heavenly Father. You are loved. You are pursued. You matter. And would you place your hope not in the earthly understanding to the answer of who Jesus is, but rather would you place your hope in the Jesus who gave his life, showed and shared his heart, and who wants you to draw near and learn more about the depth of his love, his mercy, and his grace that he extends to his people. Would that be your answer, your reality, your heart connection to your heavenly Father? As you engage with him in these ways, I believe with all my heart, then when somebody asks you the question, who is Jesus? There's going to be so much depth and meaning and personal experience and heart in your response. It won't be something that's spoon-fed from listening to a sermon or that you read in somebody else's book, but it will be real to you because you've lived it and experienced it for yourself. And that's my heart and prayer for each one of us. That when we are asked this question, who is Jesus? That we don't have to look back through our notes or find the right book or the right verse just to explain it. But that the word of our testimony would declare a God whose heart is for his people. And that it wouldn't just be something that you've learned, but that you've experienced. That has changed and transformed your heart. And that's the opportunity that's here today. So as we close, I'm going to pray that we'd be able to draw near to this God that is depicted in Luke 15, 20, to the God who came to earth as a man in Jesus and made the ultimate sacrifice that we might have life and life to the fullest, to the God who desires to have a close, intimate, powerful, impactful relationship with us and a life that overflows to others because of it. Amen. So God, thank you. Thank you that even if maybe we've wandered off for a bit, maybe we just feel distant, it doesn't matter that if we were off in a distance as your child that you're looking, I just praise you for that imagery that you saw your son coming back from a long way off. You were looking for him. You were waiting for him. So God, we thank you that that's true for us. We thank you that that's true for all of our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers that may be far from you right now. That you're looking, you're waiting, you're excited. You're working through us, through your Holy Spirit, because you want them back. You want them back at the family table. And we thank you that you're going to use us to do that. So, Father, we pray for a deep intimacy, a knowledge of who you are, of your heart for us, and with that heart for us and compassion overflow to others. We praise you for these truths. We praise you for the testimonies that will come out of this and the ways in which our relationship with you will grow, our understanding of you will grow as we grab a hold of these truths. So we thank you for this time. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.